from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this first weekend of September. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Rotting soybeans? We'll show you how too much rain is doing more than just stalling a harvest in the South. Labor issues remain along U.S. railways. So our hope is that moving forward, that will provide some real momentum for some of the other remaining unions uh, to actually come to an agreement as well. Why a possible rail strike is now less than two weeks away. Meet an Iowa man who survived a grain entrapment just two weeks ago. They just said, yeah, we're going to get you out. And, and, and I believed them. And his message for others who are emptying grain bins this fall. That's a story of survival. And in John's world. The change of seasonal anxieties. Now for the news. We've turned the calendar to September. And while some farmers are just starting to think about bringing in the summer harvest, Others are getting ready for another round of planting. And over the next couple of weeks, growers will be looking to plant the winter wheat crop. But putting seeds into dry soil may be challenging. Take, for example, Oklahoma, where a vast majority of the state is in some sort of drought. Recent rains have been small, meaning not much change in the latest drought monitor. Officials say soil moisture levels are also pretty depleted. And you can see in this map showing the one day average for moisture in the top four inches of the soil. Most places with less than one inch of water available. That's not good news as we head into another winter where some forecasters are predicting dry conditions to continue. And as you look down into those soil profiles, you know, we have sensors at 2, 4, 10, and 24 inches. Unfortunately, they get drier as we go deeper into the soil. So uh, until we get some heavier rains that will replenish those soil uh, moisture levels, I a little bit pessimistic about what our, our chances are going forward into our wheat crop. Lee says current crop production in the state is down because crops have used up the water in the soil. But he does have a little bit more hope for the soybean crop. He says even irrigated crops are struggling due to high heat conditions, which impacted pollination. Well, parts of the South seen some much needed rains, but in other parts of the South, it's too much rain hitting fields during harvest time. Take a look at Will Miller's soybean farm in Concordia Parish, Louisiana. This week in Louisiana agriculture reporting that after two weeks of daily, sometimes torrential rains, this is what's left of his fields. Miller has 3,000 acres of soybeans. Many soybeans have sprouted in the pod and died, leaving behind moldy soybeans. And the worst acres still have water in the field. And for many like Miller, this has been the most expensive crop ever. Miller says there was drought early in the season, causing him to irrigate eight times, only to have too much water come at harvest time. He's now working to salvage what he can. And at last report, 55% of the state's soybeans were rated good to excellent. That's down eight percentage points from the previous week. Well, big news in the beef world. Walmart is investing in another beef processing facility. Drovers reporting the company will become a minority partner in the sustainable beef plant that's due to be constructed in North Platte, Nebraska. Three years ago, Walmart announced a partnership with 44 farms to provide Angus beef for about 500 stores in the southeast. Sustainable beef's plans are to process 400,000 head per year. That's about 1,500 head a day. Groundbreaking is scheduled for later this month with the facility opening in late 2024. 
Well, two people could face decades in prison after being accused of defrauding investors of millions of dollars in an apparent Ponzi scheme based on cattle and marijuana. A federal grand jury found 70-year-old Riva Stocknew and Ron Throgmartin guilty of wire fraud and money laundering. Government prosecutors say the couple raised some $650 million from investors that were promised 10 to 20 percent returns on their money in a matter of weeks, then took the money from new investors to pay off the older investors, claiming the money was backed by short-term investments in cattle. They also solicited investments for a marijuana business. Sentencing is scheduled for January, and they could face more than 100 years in prison. And horrible losses to the farming community in a small rural North Dakota town. Four people are now dead following a murder-suicide in North Dakota. Investigators were called to a farm just northeast of Leeds, North Dakota. There, they found four people dead in a wheat field. All had gunshot wounds. They've been identified as 56-year-old Doug Dolmage, the owner of the farm, who was shot in his combine while he was harvesting and three others who were assisting with the harvest. That was 34-year-old Justin Bracken, 64-year-old Richard Bracken, and 59-year-old Robert Bracken, all related. Family members say there was a dispute which ended in one man killing his brother, his son, and Dolmage before turning the gun on himself. Dolmage had served as president of the Benson County Farm Bureau, friends describing him as a pillar of the community, calling his death a devastating loss. Everybody, Doug didn't have enemies. Everybody loved, loved Doug. Just a tremendous role model for all of us. If we could all be a bit more like Doug, the world would be a much better place. Farmers in the area and friends of the Domage family are now coming up with a plan to help harvest Doug's crops. Just a heartbreaking story. Well, that's it for the news. And Matt Yurisavik is keeping his eye on some developments in the Gulf of Mexico. We'll get details on a possible wetter weather pattern that's in weather next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Enzone from Farm Shop MFG, which allows you to rehydrate your soybeans from 10 to 13 percent. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's an extra semi-load added to your bottom line. Order your Enzone fan now and get 13 percent off while supplies last. now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Urasovic in our South Bend studios. Well, Matt, a year ago is when Hurricane Ida hit, leaving behind devastation, but also historic rainfall totals from the Gulf Coast all the way up to New Jersey. And now a year later, I know you are watching and keeping a close eye on quite a bit of activity in the Gulf. Yeah, Ty, and that's right. We are watching some activity in the Gulf, and we're not talking about a tropical storm or a hurricane, at least just yet. There will be some storms possible as we head towards the second half of the season, but it's been a lot of moisture coming in with a couple of stalled out fronts, and you can see the root zone even back into the southwest. A lot of extremely damp conditions, and that's from a bunch of stalled out fronts here, slowly eroding at those drought conditions here, especially in parts of Texas. Here's a look at the latest drought monitor. Not much going on through the south where it's been extremely wet because of all those stalled out fronts that were going on, but we've seen some major improvements over the last couple of weeks. Really, Colorado down into parts of Arizona and New Mexico. And just in the last week, eastern Texas starting to erode at those drought conditions. And we're going to see that continuing as we head through the upcoming week, even right here in parts of Oklahoma, Kansas, and uh, even Arkansas could see more of that rain 
through this week and some of that could even be moving up here into New England where we're starting to get more drought conditions developing. But again, that's the area there. We've seen the most improvement and we'll continue to see that kind of develop. And this is why, because it's going to keep things unsettled here across parts of the south. Big Ridge still built in parts of the west, but watch as we head deeper into the month of September, at least through this upcoming week. Things start to break down just a little bit. We could be seeing some more unsettled weather moving in as that jet stream and that ridge starts to break down just a little bit. Take a look at that. Starting to see that dip in the jet stream back in the west, which could give some areas a little bit of a break from that heat. But here's a look at Monday. More showers and storms across the east. A couple of storms moving through the mid-Atlantic. And again, that stalled out front, not going anywhere in the south. That continues to be the case on Wednesday. That front doesn't move very far, keeping showers and storms possible all the way from Texas all the way up into the mid-Atlantic. Meanwhile, staying dry and hot back there in the west with high pressure in control. That stays the case all the way through Friday. Not much going on there, but more rain moving into the upper parts of the uh, upper Corn Belt there and the northern plains through Friday and then staying very unsettled from the Great Lakes all the way down to parts of Texas and off towards the east coast heading through Friday as well. Temperature is still going to be much above average back in the west as that ridge starts to break down. More rain across the south will keep things near normal, but a little bit warmer the farther east that you go. And precipitation, obviously, we just talked about it. Very unsettled in the south, drier across the north, and that's going to be the case at least through the next week or two. But it looks like the fall forecast is going to be much above average for most of the country, September, October, and November. And precipitation could be below normal for much of the lower 48. Time back to you. Thanks, Matt. Well, that rain and all that weather in Texas may be too late for the crops. So was it weather or recession concerns weighing on the markets this week? Jared Creed and Chip Nellinger join me next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Jared Creed, as well as Chip Nellinger, joining us. All right, this week, the market action. I mean, last week we were talking about these pro-farmer crop tour results. Pro-farmer coming out with their number well below what USDA's last forecast said. So, Chip, I mean, you thought that maybe we would see some fireworks on Monday, but why did that not happen this week in the markets? Well, uh, you know, I think a couple of things. We did rally into uh, Friday, last Friday, the pro farmer uh, numbers. We, we saw a nice rally and we tried to rally uh, the first of this week. I think we're running into a lot of financial market headwinds. We've got the dollar uh, essentially at 20 year highs. You've got the interest rates now uh, basically retesting the highs from a couple months ago. Stock markets well off its uh, highs from a couple weeks ago. And there's still general, uh, I guess, fears about uh, a, an overall world uh, economic slowdown. And that seems to be the headwind right now. Uh, Pro Farmer was out undoubtedly bullish on the corn. I don't think there's any question that yields have shrank back from what the perception was a, a month, month and a half ago. But you know, now does the USDA tell us that? And that's still a, a week and a half away. And they usually take a slow measured approach to it. So uh, in my mind, the financial market headwinds uh, really kind of held us back this week. 
Yeah, Jared, you were on Pro Farmer Crop Tour. You saw some of the, the disaster in the Western Corn Belt firsthand. You're in Iowa. I mean, when you saw these yields come out from Pro Farmer, did it surprise you a bit based on what you had seen last week? I don't know if saying that it surprised me is the right term. I would agree with Chip that at this point in the year, we've become accustomed to understanding what our production is in a much tighter range. And given all the various estimates that are in the industry, uh, and no disrespect to Pro Farmer, at the end of the day, their estimate is just another private analyst estimate for total crop production. Uh, but again, at this time of the year, we're used to knowing that we have enough coming our way. And I'd say that the production guesses today are wider than normal with an extreme amount of variability north to south, east to west, with the kitchen sink of issues been thrown at the American farmer this year, specifically on corn production and quite quickly catching up on soybean production. So, Chip, then as we head into the September crop report, you know, is there anything that could fuel this market? Or do you think that actually we could see maybe more of a bearish reaction based just on how the markets are reacting right now? Well, I know I, I think both. I think if the USDA, and this is a big if, has a, a fairly sizable drop in corn yields. And, and in my mind, that means, you know, three and a half, four bushel drop in corn yields. Um, I think that could be uh, perceived as friendly under the assumption that they've got further to cut on the October and future reports. My fear, though, is since the Pro Farmer Tour dropped it down under 170, that the USDA takes a more measured approach, takes it down a bushel, bushel and a half. Uh, history has told you that as they bring the yield down, they also drop the demand, and that's going to make it harder to have a bullish reaction. So my fear at this point is, um, unless it's a three and a half, four bushel plus cut from the USDA, it might be perceived as bearish because of the uh, the depth of the cut from uh, the pro farmer tour. Uh, I gotcha. Okay. And, and Jared, I mean, you know, based on how this last crop report from USDA was measured, that was based on surveys as of August 1st, we saw some areas where that crop really went backwards since August 1st. But talk about the methodology then leading into this next crop report. Will they enter into fields and what will be measured? It's been well advertised that the August crop report was not going to have any numerator data, no USDA plots measured. That does happen in the September report. Uh, they will obviously see what they see. It's a, still a random process there. Uh, odds are low that you're going to see any ear weights in the September crop report. It's probably going to be published out in October. So that means you're going to have an average, a uh, three-year average of ear weights. So you're kind of backing into yield there. And I think Chip is right that uh, the environment that we are in right now, you can't forget, we're still at $14 beans and six and a half dollar corn. The cash market is likely going to have to decipher uh, where you have issues and where you don't. Uh, it's going to get tougher to have bullish and bearish reactions based upon USDA numbers, especially at this time of year, given everything else that we have going on in this world. All right. Well, given what we know about the outside markets and what influence it had this week, given what we know about the crop potential in the field, what possibly should your game plan be when it comes to new crop just ahead of harvest? We'll talk to Jared and Chip about that coming up later on U.S. Farm Report. Well, it doesn't matter where crop prices currently set or potential yields in the field. John Phipps says this time of year makes a lot of farmers anxious. He explains why in John's world this week. This time of year has always been a mixture of conflicting emotions for me, and I suspect I'm not alone among farmers. 
Now we can plod along apathetically earlier in the calendar year, maybe getting some mild excitement from watching the markets and congratulating or more likely consoling ourselves. The emotional ramp up actually really begins when the planters enter the field. For one thing, suddenly weather vaults to the top of our attention priority list. While our little tiny speck of global farmland hasn't been terribly dramatic this year, it has had its moments. We had cool early temperatures which shifted seemingly overnight into a remarkably hot summer with minuscule thunderstorms or drawn out drop by drop drizzles that just barely sustained our hopes. Many of us felt instinctively at that time that otherwise normal looking crops were already taking a hit. Now at the end of August, we're whispering corn yield checks and reminding ourselves that nobody can really predict how a soybean field will produce. This year has an additional type of excitement for us as one of that tier of farms who trade machinery only reluctantly, we are anticipating an event that might only be duplicated a few more times for my son, just like it was for me. A new, okay, one year old combine. It's been a few years since I got to actually drive one, but making a 14-year technological leap is challenging even for Aaron. I made what was perhaps a mistake by sitting in the cab recently and pondering the stack of manuals. While touted as taking only 20 minutes to master, the number and complexity of the buttons and screens unnerved even this technophile. At some point in life, it's not a learning curve. It's a cliff. While the excitement of deploying this new tool is real for both of us, we kind of harbor suspicions the capacity of this machine may not be severely tested this fall, which kind of adds a kind of wet blanket effect. Mixing into this muddle of feelings are hints of other things that temper our enthusiasm, like, say, a rail strike right as our elevators fill up. And our muted confidence, our fleet of 20-year-old trucks aren't just waiting to present a few bizarre malfunctions. But we have a shiny new adventure ahead of us. And all we have to do is stand here for a few weeks looking at the fields until we can begin. Thank you, John. And you can watch his commentary anytime on our Farm Journal YouTube page. All right, when we come back, another look at equipment. Machinery Pete, he has tractor tails next. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're off to Ohio to learn about a family-owned Alice Chalmers that spent many years on the dairy farm. This is our Alice Chalmers 190 XT. It was my father's tractor. Uh, it was our main tractor on our dairy farm for many years back in the 70s. In 81, uh, my father got rid of it. He bought a brand new one, traded this one in, and we got it back eventually, about 30 years later. It needed a lot of work. Initially, it had a cab on it when it was new, and then we took it off because most people say uh, when you restore them, it's time for a new, new look. They look better without a cab. We did a complete nut and bolt restoration on it. Started at the front of the uh, perch book and then worked our way to the back and eventually we got it into mint condition. It was my father's tractor and I wanted to restore it in memory of him. And it was the first tractor I ever driven too. Probably 10, 12, low gear, going slow, baling hay. We take it to several shows a year, hopefully. 
Uh, last year, our biggest show was the uh, gathering of the orange in Findlay, Ohio. A lot of dairy farmers had these tractors. We put a lot of work into it. It's, it's a lot of work to do. When you want them right, it takes a lot of time and energy to fix them up. It's priceless to us, priceless to us. Thanks, Greg. Well, since June, we've been talking about rail workers possibly going on strike this month. And after the break, Michelle Rook has the latest look at the rail situation across the U.S. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, major rail delays have plagued the U.S. really all year. And in June, we first told you about a possible stoppage at harvest, all due to a possible strike. This week, three unions reached a tentative deal, but is it enough to get rail service back on track? Here's Michelle Rook. Tentative labor deals have been reached with three of the 12 rail unions and large class one railroads. These unions represent more than 15,000 workers or 11% of the 140,000 total. Transportation officials say they hope this provides pressure for more of the labor unions to come to an agreement on the Presidential Emergency Board's recommendations. So our hope is that moving forward, that will provide some real momentum for some of the other remaining unions uh, to actually come to an agreement as well. You know, ultimately what we want to make sure is that rail service is improving. It's not taking a step back. Rail service was compromised this spring to the point that there were feed shortages in states like California. The Surface Transportation Board held a hearing in April to find solutions, but the rail companies blame most of it on labor shortages after COVID. They're way behind on the amount of people that they need, some, some of the railroads, not all of them. And um, anyway, so I, from what I understand, it takes about six months to train someone properly. Following the hearing, there were some improvements in rail service, but it didn't last long, according to one of Iowa's largest grain handlers. I actually would tell you that in the last couple of months here, uh, service for us, uh, from our perspective, is probably about as worse as it's been uh, all year long. There's still a lot of delays as far as bringing rail cars to facilities, pulling them. Uh, delivering them. You know, the, the grain industry is still not in, in a really good spot with respect to uh, rail transportation. The cost of rail service is also up with the limited availability of cars. USDA reporting for the week of August 25th, it cost $5,280 to transport a car of soybeans from Grand Island, Nebraska to Portland, Oregon, a 15% increase over the past year. But other areas are up more. Sutterdahl says they're paying less through a secondary market, but at $1,000 a car, it's still an added cost. However, he says the cost will be even higher if the remaining workers decide to strike on September 16th, as it will cripple the ag industry, even if it only lasts a day or two. If a strike happens, it would be, uh, you know, frankly, could, couldn't come at a worse time uh, here, uh, right on the cusp of uh, harvest activity. And he says that would have a negative impact on cash grain prices for farmers. If freight is not available or if it is available on a very limited basis and the price of it goes higher as a result, uh, that would have a detrimental effect on the basis. If there is a strike, history indicates it won't take long for Congress to intervene. The last widespread rail strike occurred in the 1990s and only lasted one to two days. Steenhook says there's also political motivation with the November elections right around the corner. That would really provide a lose-lose situation for everyone if uh, if they didn't come to an agreement and, and 
the workers uh, proceeded with any kind of slowdown or even ultimately a strike. That's in no one's best interest. So I, I do see um, a real strong desire by a lot of influential people to try to prevent that from happening. Steenix says a congressional precedent has been set, but also by the Biden administration with their recent actions to keep the supply chain moving. Yet National Grain and Feed Association officials say with the recent rail issues, service won't return overnight. I don't think, I think we're still going to have problems, you know, this fall, this winter, you know, it, it may be a year even before we start to have more normal rail service. I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks, Michelle. And as she just said, it could be another year before rail service is back up to speed. A rail stoppage, even short-lived, could impact basis, though. But what else should you be thinking about when it comes to the new crop? Chip Nellinger and Jared Creed rejoin me next. Welcome back. Chip Nellinger and Jared Creed rejoining us. All right, Chip, a lot of farmers, you know, weighing the decision right now. What should I be doing about new crop based on this outside market influence that really has been a weight on these markets this week? You know, what is your what is your thought for this new crop? Yeah, that's a tough question, Tyne. Um, I think it depends on where you're at in the Corn Belt and what your production prospects are. If you're over here in the Eastern Corn Belt, particularly Illinois, where I'm at, and you're looking at uh, average to way above average uh, APH, then I, I think it's time to be protective. Look at some sales or puts. Leave the top side open via some some minimum price contracts. But the 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 outside financial market risks, in my mind, are as great as they've been uh, maybe ever certainly in the last 15, 20 years um, in our grain markets. Now, if you're in the Western Corn Belt and you've struggled for rain all year and you've got a below APH crop, that's a different decision. That comes in, what's my crop insurance program? Where's my guarantees come in? And that's a different conversation. So it depends on what your yield prospects are. The bottom line here is that there, we are not without uh, downside risk and maybe a lot of downside risk especially if the financial market uh, continues to go lower and the world does drip into this kind of recessionary slowdown that's pretty well hinted at this point. Yeah, Jared, you were in one of those areas this week that has really been hard hit hard by drought, and that's Kansas. And I know you saw firsthand uh, crop potential there. There's folks that right now are, you know, chopping corn, leaving those test strips for insurance purposes. As you get in some of those drought-stricken areas, what do some of those farmers need to keep in mind when it comes to their marketing plan? A lot of what Chip just mentioned, actually, individuals that are struggling with the yield today, they darn well better understand what their insurance scenario is. And I would make a case that anybody that is in that big of a problem, their risk is actually likely shift from 22 over to the 2023 crop year. So I would say that uh, it's more than just identifying what I need to do on this crop year because your hands may be a little bit tied. The last piece left to determine on total revenue for those producers that are looking at a disaster of crop production is determining what the October averages are going to be for both beans and corn. Beans are currently below the spring insurance price, so there's a heightened chance of revenue insurance claims. And at this point in time, corn is a, a fair clip above its spring insurance price, so the only trigger that's there is a yield loss. Uh, so at that point, the farmer runs the risk of a lower price from today through the month of October, ultimately creating a lower indemnity payment from their multi-parallel insurance. There are ways to go about and protect that, uh, but it all starts with having that discussion with the insurance agent 
And, and at the same time, I think that those producers need to be looking out at 2023 uh, and not just get lost in the translation of just 2022. Well, Chip, you know, when you look at, at, at that side of it, the supply side of it, when it comes to grain, and then let's get into the cattle side of it, because we've seen the drought impact on this cattle supply. We've seen this feeder cattle market be fairly strong. We know we're going to have this tighter supply of calves come this fall. But are there any warning signs when it comes to the cattle market right now? Well, we've seen a little setback in the in the cash cattle market here the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, we continue to see breeding stock liquidated uh, because of the drought. First, it was a drought in the kind of that, uh, you know, western plains and that northwest corridor. Now it's the drought in the southern plains. Uh, it, it's just been a brutal time frame for the cow-calf operator uh, west of the Mississippi. And, and as a result, you've seen a lot of breeding stock go to market, and that's kept the numbers high and, and, and kind of kept the lid on things. I think going forward, that becomes much uh, more bullish down the road. However, the big caveat is, we talked about it earlier ahead of the break, uh, is the world economy going into some sort of a, a large slowdown in here? And that is going to be something that keeps a little bit of a lid on things. But I think fundamentally, the cattle market's set up for really good things down the road here. But you have to uh, kind of put an asterisk next to that because of a potential slowdown in the world economy and the domestic economy, more importantly. All right. Chip, Jared, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We need to take a quick break, and then we'll have a close call. Stories of survival from Iowa, a grain bin entrapment that just happened last week. We'll have that story next on U.S. Farm Report. Close Calls, Stories of Survival on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by AGI. AGI offers complete systems and solutions with industry-leading products to meet your needs. From AGI bins to Nico dryers, Hutchinson grain loops, and portable systems, AGI has you covered. To learn more, visit aggrowth.com. Heading into harvest, many of you may be working to clear out space for more storage by cleaning out grain bins. But that simple task on the farm turned into a close call for one Iowa man just two weeks ago. And this week, we have an exclusive look at his story of survival. So it looked a little bit different than last time I was on. This week was only the second yeah, time Justin Hudson had That's met Mark Wilson. No problem. Everything that you did yeah, saved my life. Well. The first time was nearly two weeks ago when Wilson was trapped in a grain bin just outside of Moravia, Iowa. The beans on the north side of the bin were up to the eave, and I was trying to get as much as I could off the north side but I ran out of grain vac tube and out was as far as I could go. Cleaning out a grain bin is something Wilson has done more times than he can even count. So then I tried to turn around and suck some around the door so we could get another door open. And that's when things went bad. Wilson says that's when suddenly soybeans started to cave in around him. I couldn't ever free myself, but that inside door was open the top one and I grabbed a hold of it, and there was so much pressure that it was all I could do to hang on to that door. With grain up to his neck and his hands still holding onto the door, Wilson had an idea. There was a stick inside the bin, and I was able to like kind of lunge for it, and with the length of it in my arm, I got it out the door about a foot, and I was just going like that. And he finally seen it and shut, shut the grain back down. And that's when his coworkers called 911. The call went out 
it was for a grain bin entrapment. Ryan Moore is a captain at a neighboring fire department, but he's also a volunteer firefighter at Moravia. He was responsive, hanging onto a rope. There were a couple farmers in there that had gotten some um, metal up behind him so it wouldn't cover him up and had gotten a rope around him. Wilson was located close to a door inside the grain bin, which also made the situation tricky. So we had about two feet of grain between him and the doorway, and then it went up about 25 feet behind us. As soon as I started talking to him, he's responding with just a calm demeanor and everything. He's not getting his heart rate up. He's not heavy breathing or anything. And I thought, this is really good, so stay calm. And you try to remind them every once in a while, stay calm. Mark, I didn't really have to because he was already calm. When I first got in the grain bin, I had a dust mask on. And, uh, but then after a while, they could see that I needed some oxygen and pulled that off. They just said, yeah, we're gonna get you out. And, and, and I believed them. Moore called outside for this grain bin rescue tube to help alleviate the pressure around Wilson. As soon as we got the tube around him, about that time's when the ambulance and the paramedics showed up. He was, yes, he was by this door, but he's a couple feet from the door and he's got green all around him. He's buried up to his neck. So I can't get to him. I can't do anything. I can't give him any medications. I can't necessarily get in there and start an IV on him. And as they tried to get the rescue tube around Wilson, the team discovered there was a problem. The greenback tube was next to me and that prevented them from getting the rescue tube down farther. So the beans that we were taking out, they were coming in about as fast underneath with all that pressure. It's kind of like flowing water. With him being so far deep in our tube, the auger had to be, had to punt on that one and do a little different method. So we ended up having to auger it and hold the bucket inside the tube instead of just augering it outside the rescue tube like it's designed to do. We did it a little different and it worked for a little bit, but then I think Mark came up with the idea, somebody go get a shop vac. Wilson was able to use the shop vac to help relieve the pressure around his waist, but they ran into another roadblock. Once we got him loose enough, we were now below our grain bin rescue tube. So the grain from the backside that was piled up so high started sloughing off under the grain bin tube. And that's when the team was forced to cut holes in the grain bin, the first across from the doorway. Somebody called for another grain vac, and now we're vacing the backside of the tube, tube from two different holes, and it allowed us to gain on the falling grain. Between Moravia, Centerville, and other fire departments, there were nearly 30 personnel on site, all working to get Wilson out. I've done enough rescues in different fashions that nothing ever goes the way you train, and you have to have a backup plan and a backup plan from your backup plan. Wilson walked out of the grain bin just hours later, and with life flight on standby, Wilson was taken to a Des Moines hospital out of precaution. I had so many beans in my pockets up there at the ER, the, the beans were everywhere. And I apologized, and they said, well, we've had this before, not that long ago, but you came out a lot better than the other gentleman. I was just lucky, thankful to be alive. With soybeans still scattered across the floor on the Moravia Fire Department, there are constant reminders of the remarkable rescue that happened on August 22nd, as Wilson's close call is now a story of survival and one they'll never forget. Ryan, thank you, buddy. No problem. Saved my life. 
I want to say thank you to Wilson and the first responders and everyone at the fire station for opening up about what happened two weeks ago. Now I did ask Wilson what's the one thing he wants others to know. He said even though you think it won't happen to you, it can. And always have a second person outside if you do have to step inside the grain bin for any reason. All right, when we come back, is there a way to make it rain? Customer support is next. Cloud seeding, is it a real thing? Well, all across the U.S., there are some areas that just can't escape the drought this year. But is there a way to actually make it rain? Here's John Phipps. We got a different question about weather from Derek Jones in Saginaw, Michigan. I wanted to know, does cloud seeding really work? And if it does, why aren't some, if not all those drought ridden states, at least attempting to try anything, if it will work? Even if it had a small chance of working, dead crops, rivers and lakes drying up, animals dying from heat exhaustion, it's clear climate change is only getting worse with each passing year. And if man is a direct cause of these changes, then man can be part of the solution. Uh, well, cloud seeding was first conceived in the late 1800s, but didn't get any traction until we had planes, obviously, to try it out. Basically, various types of compounds are sprayed or shot with artillery shells into the clouds to provide nuclei around which water can condense, leading to particles large enough to fall to the ground. I was going to show a bunch of horrifying dry rivers, but I'll save that for another time and a different topic. However, the rapidly worsening water supply crisis has done just what you suggested, prompted governments to try remedies with uncertain success rates, which is about the best you can say for cloud seeding. Despite the fact that China and other countries are trying more cloud seeding, mostly with silver iodide, it has not produced much evidence it works. It's just too hard to establish a control experiment to compare to. That may change with new methods of measuring cloud droplet size tried last year. Meager evidence from that experiment showed statistically significant rainfall of six millimeters, or about a quarter of an inch. That is not practically significant, however, as corn farmers found out this summer. Indeed, the cost of seeding, if it does work, makes it more likely to be used to induce snow for the ski industry, which, looking at ski lift tickets, can well afford it. Outside China, there is no established seeding industry, just a few operations in North Dakota and some other plain states. I am very skeptical whether it will ever be practical or even a proven technology, but if I'm wrong, prepare for a burgeoning climate litigation industry to be putting up billboards to attract those who feel their rain was stolen by a neighboring area. Finally, whenever we get to the point of thinking we've got to try something, even if it has almost no chance of working, prepare to be fleeced. Thank you, John. Well, we're hoping for cooperative weather this fall as we kick off our 2022 College Road Show next week. And up next, we'll tell you who we're teaming up with to hit the road and the exciting opportunity for students on certain campuses this fall. We have all the details coming up next.
Well, September is here. Combines are starting to roll across the Midwest and college football is back on. And this year we're teaming up with Bex to find the research and people behind the projects that could help your farm and all of agriculture in the future. That's because we're continuing our road show at different universities this fall. As we kick off the College Roadshow at Purdue University next week, something new for 2022, a social media contest where student organizations at the schools we visit will have a chance to win $1,500 in donations from Bex. It's open to any collegiate organization at one of the seven universities we visit, and it's to create Instagram and TikTok reels or videos answering why we're all farmers at heart. The videos will be judged based on quality, creativity, and the number of social interactions. And just make sure to stay tuned to all of our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And we will make sure to post all of the details about our college roadshow with Bex coming up starting next week. Well, that's all the time that we have for this week. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in again next weekend as we hit the road and continue our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.